This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss the essay, taken from a book of the same title, Old Gods, New Enigmas, Notes on Revolutionary Agency, by Mike Davis. preface of this thing is called Marx at the Chicken Shack. The first little like subtitle is Read Marx. And he tells this story uh I guess he was driving truck after he quit high school back in the day. And he met this he would he met I guess what the one place where he stopped, he met this guy who was like an old uh old militant and he'd bore him some wine and They'd sit around and like shoot the shit and he'd talk theory and stuff. And at the end, the guy would, uh, as he got to leave, the guy would slap him on the back and tell him, read Marx. Um, I think, you know, I feel like this, this is an appropriate piece to read for like the 100th episode because there's one message, you know, I want people to get. It's read Marx. And uh, he basically, from there, he kind of talks about kind of the relationship of like the writings of Marx to working class militants just in general and how, you know, before it was widely translated, it was just kind of this thing that was sort of understood through the party, almost kind of in the way that, like, the Bible was understood through the clergy, like, to medieval peasants, you know what I mean? Um, but people would, I mean, people would read some of the more common things, like, you know, obviously the Manifesto and maybe, like, Volume 1 of Capital and the things that have been translated, but a lot of this stuff was kind of left up to... Th- the sort of intellectuals of like the party or whatever group to sort of interpret for people. And he kind of talks about, you know, basically kind of coming from the working class and his own kind of intellectual development and gets into like Marx's intellectual development. And yeah, that's kind of the, the first little preface. Mm. He makes a note of where he gets his theoretical lineage from. Um, and I think he has some dismissive comments about the Althusserian tradition that he was wrestling with until he stumbles upon a reading capital seminar with Robert Brenner. Right. Yeah. He really gets into like his salad days of being like a late sixties Marxist. Yeah. That's like, look, read Marx and then go do science was essentially the message he gets from Robert Brenner, which again, Robert Brenner, no one likes to call him an analytical Marxist, but what is, Mike Davis's program of really solid empirical sociology that informs, you know, his integration of like the early and late Marx into a big Lukashian narrative, as he puts it. You know, this is like, even though he's situating himself in that Hegelian Marxist kind of humanist tradition, like the fact is that he commands like sociology because he's a major figure in sociology like yeah Yeah. well and like so the last big book that he wrote was planet of slums and planet of slums is kind of focusing it focuses a lot on 
this sort of increasingly lumpenized global proletariat. And one thing that studying that caused him to ask is that he really wanted to know if if this if this kind of proletariat has historical agency. So what he sets to figure out in the essay is what historical agency for the proletariat really means. And he says that he seeks out, he seeks to make something like, quote, something like a historical sociology of how the working classes acquired consciousness and power. And, and it's his comparison to Lukash, to George Lukash, George Lukash, uh, the Hungarian, uh, like Hegelian Marxist dude. Um, in that actual sort of theoretical lineage, Lukash gets drawn into, you know, debates on, under the party and gets kind of bullied into accepting that his precious theory of, of sort of class epistemology about the special standpoint of the proletariat can be sort of transferred to a party apparatus. And I mean, it's something latent in Lukash's thought, um, but I think Mike Davis does like a pretty good job of showing where proletarians, when engaged, do kind of bring their epistemological like specialness, whatever you want to call this, like to their organizations and like, you know, in a way, the more pro the organization, the better, <laughs> like for their, for their like subjectivity, um, without well, he- getting drawn into what happens to the later Lukash. Like there's, there's definitely like a, a break implied by this text. Um, you know, that is, is pretty commonsensical. He doesn't make, he doesn't draw any hard lines, but you know, there's a sense of we all know what happens next. There's no point in dwelling on that. I just want to read something from that same section. Uh, a persistent theme that emerges from these case studies is that class capacity on larger scales arises conjuncturally as activists reconciled both in practice and in theory different partial demands and interests. In other words, it was, preci- it was precisely at the confluence of struggles, uh, wages and suffrage, neighborhood and factory, industrial and agricultural, and so on, and sometimes intra-class antagonisms such as skilled versus semi-skilled, that the creative work of organizing became the most important and radically transformative. Historical agency, in other words, derived from the capacity to unite and strategically synthesize the entire universe of proletarian grievances and aspirations as presented in specific conjunctures and crisis. Right. Going back to the Lukács part briefly, I, it's kind of interesting that he draws upon Lukács specifically and still has like a vaguely analytic Marxist framework kind of that he gets from Brenner it's not it's not necessarily analytic per se it's just sort of like a clear writing style and an emphasis on you know the sort of scientific part of Marxism I guess if you want to call it that yeah it's kind of interesting that he draws from Lukács particularly Lukács of uh, history and class consciousness because Lukács starts off the book this starts off the book with like a bristling essay, basically attacking both Bernstein and Kotsky in a way that like essentially does not, uh, it articulates Marxism as a method that's against sort of like an empiricist scientific reading of Marxism. Yeah. In particular. It is an so, awkward fit. Yeah, that, um, that, that's what I'm trying to say here, I guess. It, yeah. It's an awkward fit. 
Well, there's also the fact that Jake, in that quote that you read, he says conjuncture twice. Now, I don't know if I'm just, you know, a little miseducated lumpen intellectual or something, but, you know, I associate the word conjuncture with Althusser very heavily, and he doesn't say anything nice about Althusser in this essay. Um, you know, like, so it seems like, <coughs> excuse me, even though there's a clear sort of, in my view, analytical Marxist sort of like framework that he's, um, implicitly doing research from that his, his actual, the actual framework that he ends up putting forward draws upon a sort of eclectic mix of Hegelian Marxist and, uh, structuralist sources for the most part. Like, and there's a number of structuralists that he like invokes and that's not a sin, but he invokes some right next to uh, Frankfurt school and Lukash and the Hegelian tradition, which is, you know, these are supposed to be intention, right? But that's sort of not overall out of step with the, the approach you see with regards to how he approaches even like political life. And, you know, like he doesn't go that much into the strife between the different kinds of socialist politics. He doesn't go that far into places where socialist politics genuinely failed the proletariat or like he, he does get into situations where like the German party, you know, didn't accept the peasantry and, you know, took a very narrow like reading of proletarian self-interest. And he, you know, pointed out how Lenin accepted part of this, but also, you know, the problematic relationship there, but he doesn't like, he doesn't go whole hog about forced collectivization. He doesn't like draw out those things. He kind of smooths over, those rough patches like well he seems to be broadly more interested in the 19th century than the 20th century um i think he's, he, he's kind of looking back to that thing that's maybe a little more forgotten which is kind of the the socialist the working class social and socialist movements in, in its ascendance right like how do like where how did it emerge from the enlightenment you know how like how did how did how did it get from there to its like high point in like the early 20th century that seems to be the time frame he focuses more on than say you know the challenges of like actually existing socialism yeah he's also seemingly drawing upon anarch a sort of like anarchism a bit like generally obviously in like a later ab uh essay he draws upon peter kirkpotkin he, he like basically brushes over the differences between anarchists and marxists and towards the end of the essay, he talks about how, like, socialism is direct democracy and there's no need for the party, party apparatus, to function. Basically, like, he, he takes almost a weirdly anarchist bent towards the end, from what I could gather. He seems to think that there's a role for these, quote, quasi-permanent institutions. And, and like... the. That's what he calls the unions and the labor parties. He thinks that there is legitimate proletarian expression. He does privilege the workers' council. He is a he is like a sort of centrist, like like a left centrist. He's like a very sympathetic to councilism. He sees because of the Lukashian like historical sociology like angle. He sees the council as like like an organ of truth, more or less. Like 
Yeah. Well, he he talks like he gets in later sections like he gets he focuses on like what he calls like proletarian civil society. And he talks about <laughs> like the labor temples and how these things were like expressions of the development of like the working class in certain areas that they were able to pool their resources and like, you know, create like literal like physical infrastructure for further organizing and, you know, like self-development, right? And so I don't think, I feel like, you know, that, I feel like, you know, he does seem, he does kind of recognize the relate the, the necessary relationship between like institutions and maybe like the more like invisible, like spontaneous quote unquote aspects of, yeah. of working class organization. Well, I, I shouldn't have said like it's rejection of the party. It's a rejection of a specific form of party. Like obviously, like, yeah, he does feel that a part parties in general and labor unions have like a role to play but it's not of that of like a late leninism a centralized bureaucratic party you know is that's that's what he's more or less getting at and it's more like decentralized decentralized and he links that back to karl kotsky well, he like he like argues that like one of the strengths of the Bolshevik party, the Bolshevik party, was precisely its like decentralization. Um, but I wonder how much that was just like the expediency of uh, organizing under like illegal, <laughs> illegal status and the you know utter lack of like communication infrastructure that existed within Soviet or within you know pre-revolutionary Russia. Well, a lot of those pressures contributed to. Like how you know militant you know parties would be though, and how like centralized certain aspects of it would have to be, like um, in addition to creating like the cell structure that you're talking about. So it's kind of like a you know repression. Also, you know, while it, it enhanced sort of like a decentralization, that also kind of harmed like the sort of openness that democracy normally thrives on. <laughs> At least when you're not trying to do socialism or whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, like I think Kautsky is also part of the target, though. Um, of like, there's a break between late Lukash and early Lukash that I was getting at, and it's about this question of how subjectivity can kind of be put onto the party. And I think what you say is astute for the most part, in the sense that I, I would just say that and not anarchist so much as like autonomous, like in a sort of like early, like, like the second international, like the left of the second international, maybe like the center left of the third international, like people that didn't reject the, you know, the broader institutions, but thought that there was a special sort of proletarian involvement. That's the real, like the real movement. So, right. I, 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 yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, with a lot of people who critique Karl Kotsky, I feel like he's not actually that acquainted with what Karl Kotsky actually wrote, but just sort of gets gets a critique sort of secondhand from like Lukács and company on what, you know, what obviously people thought of Karl Kotsky as sort of like just the ruiner of Marxism. It's a general theme throughout academia, you know, there's always one figure within Marxism that distorted everything, and usually it, they either, um, pick, Stalin's a pretty easy one, I guess, I mean, it, it, 
it's easier simply because Stalin did just butcher a lot of people, and he was generally a bad theorist per se. But I, I don't, I don't necessarily think of him as completely inaccurate to Marxism, or at least a certain Marxism of the time. Uh, well, there, there is, there is a part of this that describes, you know, how the later angles turns more to the, you know, Kautskyan kind of like argument, you know what I mean? So it's not, I don't, I don't think it's totally like, oh, this is a complete and utter break. This is terrible. I don't think it's as, um, I, I don't think it's as like deflationary as, as, and, and I, and I don't think it's as like as much of a distortion, you know what I mean? Well, to be like fair, Kautsky, to be fair, a, a lot of a lot of love Marx, a lot of academic Marxists like Michael Heinrich, and even Lukács himself traced like sort of a deformation of Marxism back to Engels specifically too. So yeah, uh, yeah, it, no, but like it's important to point out that this is different than Marx's work on the commune. That was Marx's strongest. Uh, like p- positive political theory outside of like uh, Goethe critique, right? Um, and so Engels does have explicit statements that are different than Marx's, even though they're continuous. Like it's yeah. not like a, it's not like a total betrayal, but it's a different direction. Right. And like, um, Engels lives longer, and Engels is more friendly with Espadey. Yeah, it's more of an inconsistency overall because if you were to say look at the Look at the Communist Manifesto's position on, say, the state, you know, it, it's fundamentally way different than what Marx writes about the commune, and even what Marx writes in the critique of the Goethe program. But it, there, there's obviously still some continuity and confusion on the matter, and that's why Marx intended to write a whole book on the state as a part of a larger series with Capital. But well, and like the the like the the, the way this like the thing is like things things change, right? Like so, so, so like their analysis changed with it, you know. Like that's the reason. <laughs> excuse me, that's the reason why like Engels abandoned the idea of um, being more like reliant on armed revolution as a way, you know. After he, like because he basically talked about how he noticed how military technology changed such that. Um, a sort of armed working class uprising in that in like later 19th century probably wouldn't have gone so well for the working class right so yeah i could see i could see similar things happening vis-a-vis the state or any of these other things where it's like yeah like the politics and the you know even the social material circumstances are different like later in their life so their views shift slightly you know I mean that's perf- that's perfectly true but the fa- fact of the matter is as per- for what marx wrote Right. There is that consistent Hegelian sort of like, you know, a libertarian edge to Marx that, you know, in the later angles, like we're dealing with, you know, fundamentally we're dealing with, with, with Kautskyism. And you don't have a lot of explicit statements from Marx that say that we can lay our hands on like the bourgeois state and use those levers to help the social revolution. You know, he never goes like Engels never goes back to the position of the communist manifesto where you can kind of lay your hands on the state machinery and, you know, and that would be kind of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wait, like, I thought, no, 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 actually, wait, wait, there was a letter, there was a address that he gave like post communist manifesto 
in Holland or something like that to like the Workers League or something like that where he talks about it. Yeah, where it's like po specifically possible for like Brit Britain, uh, Britain, the United States, and um, and the Nether Holland to possibly have a quote-unquote democratic road to socialism. So mm -hmm. yeah, uh, like it's it's like Engels, like Engels never puts down in like insurrection though as like a, as a tactic, even when he's doing this. What even even as he's kind of he's moving back towards that older position, right? But it's I don't know. It's tempered by the experience of the commune. I would I would say it's like not the same. And in in and like a and there's an inconsistency with that. And even you know the early Marx and and like you see the difference between the draft of principles of communism and the way that Marx expresses things in the manifesto, which consistently have a bit more of a libertarian cut to them. Like, and um, it's possible that there is just, a, like, you know, a political Marx that, like, expresses something like the later angles later on in, in his life, but that Marx kept it quiet. But it seems, you know, probably more likely to sort of infer from his unwillingness to get involved with the SPD the way that Engels did, that he was more dissatisfied with the state of affairs than Engels. Critique, I think the critique of the Gotha program is getting involved with the SPD. Yeah, but he doesn't publish it at the time. He's, he basically suppresses it because he doesn't want to hurt the party. I, I like, thought I thought he wasn't the one that suppressed it. Like it wasn't. It was, was suppressed. No, it was suppressed by the SPD itself, and actually, Karl Kotsky was the one who got it leaked. Yeah, well, we should we should uh, get a fact checker here on that one. But yeah, it wasn't suppressed by him. I don't think it was actually suppressed by himself, and was just generally angry about it. It was something that was published later on, but no. Well, it, from what I remember, of course, I, I don't. Yeah, the the controversy that I remember is uh, the introduction to civil war in France by Engels, which later becomes, which is is published as a, as a pamphlet by the SPD called. Um, uh, I I I forget what it is, but it's <laughs> it's it's like uh, you know the fundamental strategy of socialism. I can't remember what the fuck it's called. I'll dub it in later. <laughs> um, like. This, this, oh, it's called the, the Tactics of Social Democracy. Um, that's the, that's the title that it's attributed under. It's like late angles. Um, this introduction to the Civil War in France, where he basically start, takes a step towards that communist manifesto position and admits that there are levers of, of power that could be, you know, used by the workers' movement within the state. Um, like, it, the, when the SPD circulates that, they cut out the pro-insurrection stuff that admits that insurrection is still a tactic. And and that's the controversy that I remember with, with SPD and and Yeah, like I mean, stuff. There's, there's also a version of Road to Power that was edited by the SPD also yeah. that cuts out, like, even, you know, the harder edges of it. But, yeah, I... Yeah, so it wouldn't be the first time if that's the case, but I understood that it was something voluntarily yeah, done but by thing, Marx and Engels the, because the, they thought it would harm the, the original. The, the party. original 
point that I was trying to get at was, like, basically because of this, like, sort of critique of, like, Angles and Kotsky that, like, you know, uh, Mike Davis, like, accepts uncritically. Basically, he's left with no in-between between, like, sort of, like, the let, the, like, basically sort of a weird kind of anarchism and just, you know, third, like, high third period Leninism. There's no mass party. There's no mass, because a lot of this could easily just be, you know, form, with, formed within, like, informed by an understanding of the mass party as, like, this democratic organ of workers' power that does all the, you know, sort of organization of workers in, like, you know, social life and that sort of thing, while still remaining, like, you know, democratic in its nature. But there's there's no there's no real in-between. It just sort of haphazardly says, oh, yeah, unions and parties will be a part of the process, but the main thrust of it will be, you know, the organization of the proletariat along its own lines. I... I don't know how to read this essay without a deep respect for the ways that parties and unions can be expressions of proletarian agency. Like, I mean, can be, right? And like, can be, but the, but the thing is, the, it's like a great deal of it is like spontaneously out from the workers and through. Mi- it's kind of a weird. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of an inconsistency because. He goes from, like, praising, like, organizers, like, organizers who were obviously kind of militant within their ranks and, you know, generally getting, like, in particular with Russia, you know, just getting, like, the most militant workers away from anti-Semitism and that sort of thing. And then, you know, diminishing the roles that, like, a party would have you know, in terms of, like, framing it in terms of, like, a late Leninism. He doesn't use the phrase late Leninism, of course. He, you know, he just talks about it in terms of, like, a highly centralized party, a traditional vanguard party concept. Well, okay, well, here's what's interesting about, like, his survey of this whole thing, is that he looks at, like, different historical circumstances and regions and their different like peculiar the particularities of them right like for instance he talks about the french case where you had weak unions but militant workers right he's trying to explain like okay how can this be and he gets into the like particularities of like french class conflict and capitalist development um where things let me see if i can pull up how, like basically what his exact uh what his exact argument was but he was basically talking about how I believe in in the French case, um, like this assumption under capitalism wasn't as strong um, as elsewhere. And so things were still very like highly like regionalist. And so, yeah, you would basically get like these weak trade unions, but you would get like these really strong, like spontaneous like strike waves that basically came out of nowhere. And I think what he's arguing is that there's like kind of like a whole unrecorded like social architecture in place that can sometimes find its find expression in like these mass actions that are often you know considered to be spontaneous but it's more just because you know the kind of relationships and um 
the kind of the like the yeah like the social base that it that was happening with it wasn't something that you could necessarily like would have permanent expression or that would be recorded somewhere like you that would be like measurable historically and it's like that in any organization like you know there's the official like face of like so let's take like the dsa right and then there's all of like the insane shit that's going on like online and like you know in different chapters and you know all this all this other stuff that like you know probably when the history of any of this is written will never be recorded or remembered but makes up a big funk part of the you know actual life of like the organism of the organization does that make sense right i i guess yeah there's just so parts of like so yeah he's like he's like drawing he's basically trying to like explain like how you get like like mass strikes and these kind of like spontaneous things like i think he understands that you know like institutions are important but there is there, there just is objectively more going on in the official groupings where he pulls this example from this um let me see if i can remember what it was this thing's so sprawling um there was like a um <clears throat> there was like a local i think it was some local company town or some shit where they thought they were just dealing with a bunch of like like polish like peasants basically who had come to work in the factory but they were actually dealing with like all these like ex like radicals from Europe who had like who had had like deep experience in terms of like organizing and stuff like that and were able to like run circles around uh, around like the management and so like they just had no idea what they were dealing with and so like you, you know there's there's like all kinds of like like weird like I don't know yeah um Rosa just to speak to your points on this like like I I do agree that there's maybe a tendency in this text to smooth over a bunch of differences. Like there's a just to be kind of blunt, a bit of a group hug tendency, maybe a bit of a, a left unity and a little bit of a, a a people's history gloss on a lot of the details. Um, and you know, for instance, he does the Trotskyist thing where he mentions the heroic Kronstadt sailors. And their role, their central role in, you know, in their struggle. Now, whatever happened to them? You know, like, it's not really picked up on. Um, and, you know, it's important for making this kind of history inspiring in a genuine way <laughs> to maybe tie up those those ends. Because um, when, when, I read, when I read this, I have in the back of my mind a history of separation, um, which is, you know, honestly, it's a bit more like, you know, it has a bit it's a bit more consistent, you know, and it maybe blot, it's a totalizing argument that blots out, um, the only revolutionary agency that's existed in a Marxian big, in a big Marxian sense. Um, so it's like worth pushing back on. And that's why it's in a way why this is our hundredth episode. But I, I just also want to say that part of what maybe you don't like Rosa, I think is a strength is that like, you know, no, it's not the form that he's kind of like that that he's most interested in, even though he's sensitive to the different kinds of institutions that there are. He thinks he does privilege the council form. He does privilege direct democracy. He does say that he he draws on he draws on Marx's legitimacy for that. But ultimately, like I think he he would also probably agree that there are forms of direct democracy that lose the luster. The same way that you know trade trade unions and parties can lose 
that thing that he's interested in. Yeah, no. Expression I, I of agency. I don't. I don't. Ne- I don't actually necessarily disagree with like some part, some necessity of direct democracy being a part of like the development for socialism. I think him bringing up cyber synth is ultimately good. I just. I feel like, to a certain degree, and and I feel like even working with anarchists, you know, working with anarchists and even some of the softer, cuddly left union, unity stuff is actually might be necessary for going forward. But at the same time, I can't help but like feel like he's neglecting the importance of like, you know, party politics and like even the platform because I it, I, I don't know. Maybe it's the neo or Kotsky. I can't, I still can't say that fucking name. Jesus, it's been five years I've been labeled it, and I can't, I still can't fucking say that name. Um, Kotsky, I, or whatever, I, I don't, it, it you know, Kautsky, I, Kautsky, I, um, yeah, it's just, you know, the importance of, like, a program as a form of un- unifying these, like, different strands, different tendencies, and uniting it under a mass party is somewhat important for the develop- development of, like, a larger movement. I-, I feel like it's still important, I feel like he kind of underrates that in order well, to, I- like, I think, push I- back I think that's beyond Lenin. the purview of this essay, though. That's the thing. Like I don't think he started he he wrote this essay to like relitigate like the different like sectarian debates within like the communist movement. The point of this essay is basically he's trying to understand the character of proletarian historical agency and you know with an eye towards looking at like the contemporary shifts in like global capitalism and the composition of the working class on a global scale and attempting to understand how the proletariat as it exists today how it can find agency by trying to understand almost like you could say like the method by which the historical proletariat found agency and developed itself in terms of consciousness and politically you know in the 19th and you know i guess early 20th century right right i i yeah and i i i agree that's like a good sort of solid base that's the entire point of the essay and there's actually pretty decent point i i believe a point that's basically repeated where like essentially like what a part of that agency a part of that agency was the ability to like sort of like be both to both have like basic economic demands as well as political ones like he, he talks about the charitist movement a lot, and charitist movement being the basis of Marx's and Engels's understanding of the proletariat agency. And the charitist movement was a radical democracy movement centered around like emancipation of, I mean the, the fucking, what it, uh, the enfranchisement of working men in in elections, giving them the right to vote. And that mo- that like developed into something even more radical in terms of like developing a working class labor movement in Britain, and it it, it it's through like combining like economic economic demands with political demands that get that's what gives the proletariat agency. It's kind of a little bit like the merger formula in a certain sense, a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's there is like some overlap with Kautskians, like with the um, with the defense of a role for you know political agency and political party and like trade union activists within like having their special causality within class struggle. There's a very sensitive defense of that. That it that overall, Jake, you're right that this is a historical sociology. You know, it's basically class subjectivity and you know class capacities. And and he's putting sociology over politics in a big way. I think that's just good old fashioned historical materialism. I really like that. But you know, to what Rosa was sort of pushing back on earlier is that in order to do that, yes, he defends this uh, political subjectivity to a degree, but he explicitly privileges class consciousness over program. He makes that he says it explicitly, like that class consciousness. You know is is class consciousness uses the programs uses the tools of the parties you know the party isn't the like it it's not the like it, the program isn't the embodiment I, I don't like i'm sorry how do i put it the, I, the, I, like um i wouldn't say i believe it like that i mean i feel like there's a necess like obviously you need to combine it with some kind of political program it's Class consciousness is the thing that comes first. Class consciousness is something that develop that is needs to be like essentially stronger, and then it sort of melds in with like higher socialist demands that become somewhat more political in their nature. It's like you you have like this sort of development in like say with uh, Germ Germany with the first workers. Uh, with Fre- Frederick uh, Lassil's party combining with like a sort of liberal organization that was like would become the SPD. Now the Eisenachers, yeah, like, uh, forming with the the Marxists yeah. to make the SPD. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, general dev- like obviously, I I don't think anyone can really deny like. The need for class consciousness and that sort of thing, but like class consciousness is something that can only come from like higher something something combining with the poli- combining the political with the economic the desire economic in like a clear way. It, it can only be radicalized through that, and I think he underrates the necessity of parties for doing that, but at the same time, I appreciate him going through like the history and the pro- history of proletarian agency that exists outside of parties. But also inside, like it's it's not absent of the inside story. Oh yeah, know? yeah, definitely, definitely. He just he doesn't follow Lukash. Like when Lukash gets older, he makes that compromise with his theory so that the parties. You know, the party can appropriate the class subjectivity basically as an ideology, as the way I'd think of it. Like, where, whereas, you know, he, he's like, nah, he walks away from that. I, you know, which makes me wonder why he named checks Lukash, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really don't understand name checking Lukash, giving his methodology also. So I guess like he starts off kind of looking at like the prospects of like the contemporary working class and he talks or he first he talks about like automation a little bit and kind of the historical he briefly just kind of gestures to like the historical debates around that and sort of comes to the conclusion that like now like the automation crisis might be for real this time though 
He provides like table 1.1 talks about like, the global job crisis, how the you know the global labor force and the like mass number of unemployed, you know inactive youth, child workers, etc. But what's interesting is he he goes okay at a high level of abstraction. The current period of globalization is defined by a trilogy of ideal typical economies: super industrial, um, he has in brackets coastal East Asia, financial uh, tertiary North Atlantic. And hyper-urbanizing extractive, for that he has West Africa. Jobless growth is incipient in the first, chronic in the second, and virtually absolute in the third. We might add a fourth ideal type of disintegrating societies caught in the vice of war and climate change, whose chief trend is the export of refugees and migrant labor. Excuse me. In any event, we can no longer rely on a single paradigmatic society or class to model the critical vectors of historical development. Imprudent coronations of abstractions like the multitude as historical subjects simply dramatize the poverty of empirical research. Contemporary Marxism must be able to scan the, fu- from, to scan the future from the simultaneous perspectives of Shen, uh, Shenzhen, Los Angeles, and Lagos if it wants to solve the public, the puzzle of how heterodox social categories might be fit to get, fitted together into a single resistance to capitalism. Imagining working class subjectivity is even more like heterogeneous maybe than, you know, it was before, which is strange because you kind of think that capitalism would simplify things. And in a way it does, but like in terms of the nitty gritty of individuals' lives, people relate in such fucking weird ways, you know, that, you know, overall structurally Marxists can explain. But it's not like the first thing that comes to mind for everybody. Like there's a lot of fetishization uh, like that's built into capitalism that you know without like some kind of like theory about it you know you might like just sort of i don't know like the the ideas that suggest themselves to you in life practice you know can mislead you <laughs> like and there's nothing necessarily like i don't know stupid about it it's like you know tricky things are tricky <laughs> like these things are, are are sort of built to obscure themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of I kind of like that kind of the thinking he's doing here of kind of trying to broadly characterize the different, you know, sort of modes of capitalism by region and the implications that it has for like working class organization in each of them. Right. That's why you see, you know, for instance, that's why you see like in coastal East Asia. You know, like these sort of mass working class uprisings, the forms of strikes or riots or whatever. Um, and that's, a, a, you know, the particular character of those states necessitates the forms of organization that those have to take. Um, or, you know, the sort of the sort of insane closer to like planet of slum style situation that you get in like West Africa and other parts of the global south. Right. Um, I don't know. Again, I just thought that was like an interesting way to frame it. And. He, he, I mean, he is absolutely right that it, you know, trying to figure out how, how to like develop like lines of solidarity between these, and how to, because you know how how you have like working class organization within these different contexts, you know, is sort of like the big, the big challenge. Yeah, yeah, you end up with all these like subtypes with like uh, divided within class, and it can yeah, it can be very complex and like different there's different kinds of cities and i think like the broadest the broadest way you could handle this is through a sort of typology that he's suggesting you know what i mean that like but you have to be able to identify like different types of situations 
that have these like you know really different potential ways of of combining like i don't know small proprietarians or people under debt relationships but they think you know but they have property you know nominally or what have you you know people could be very vulnerable and and you know converge with what you might call proletarian class interests in that respect like i don't know it's like it's a kind of basic point but it's something that like overall in the marxist tradition you find yourself having to argue <laughs> um so i guess there's another second so trying to like develop a uh definition of agency he po- he turns to ellen wood and she characterizes agency as the possession of strategic power and a capacity for collective action founded in the specific conditions of material life. He takes issue with this for a little a little bit. He says that he would add capacity. Capacity is a develop is a developable potential for conscious and consequent activity for self making. Not a position that not a disposition that arises automatically and inevitably from social conditions. He also let's see, and I guess he basically says there's like three crucial elements of revolutionary agency, which are organizational capacity, structural power and hegemonic politics, which apparently he gets into in the following essay. Yeah, one of the big strengths of this essay is his, like, not just the periodizations, which his periodizations actually go back, like, before endnotes, his periodizations. Like, he includes the artisans and the cobblers and that sort of thing, like, and class struggle in there, and as, like, relevant to the story. So it's not just the that periodization, but then, yeah, the different types of like economies producing uh like you know different kinds of class struggles and then like the ways different political regimes affected like organization and like well yeah and he, ta- well, he talks all- he also talks about how different the sort of inner class conflict within the working class and how different historically different sections of the working class were sort of the vanguard of the working class in different periods that was really fascinating and how like the politics and the tactics would sort of shift depending on which group was sort of at the forefront. He talks about how Marx didn't like, you know, believe like the crude, there's always like that crude characterization of Marx that he thought like everybody would be industrial workers or whatever. And that's not true. He talks about how, you know, the England was kind of the first service economy that we always hear about because like the majority, like a, like a ton of the like workers in England were servants because industrialization and automation freed up all of these people to do other labor. So what they, they ended up doing was going to work for, you know, the air, the old aristocracy. And there was sort of a, the industrial working club, the industrial workers kind of basically like looked down on those people and kind of just saw them as cucks essentially. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of points out how, even back then, you could almost see like an aspect of decadence where, you know, instead of people having to work less, like you've just freed up more people to like shine Lord Barrington's shoes or be his valet or whatever, you know. What do we think about the stuff <clears throat> when he's talking about Marx and Engels uh, with regards to the mass strike? That was one of the things in here that stuck with me the most because, like, in a lot of these debates, we're so far away from the context that like most socialists today, most Marxists general strike. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? Like whatever, no problem. Engels calls like the general strike 
at the end of his life, the Belgian idiocy. <laughs> uh, and like and he counterposes that to the dramatic electoral progress of the SP day in uh in the tactics of social democracy right and um and like there's like a kind of funny thing that happens there's a sort of horseshoe theory where the centrists like Kautsky and Engels like really don't like these general strikes like they think it's just sort of like an uh, incitement towards like you know the working class getting its head smashed in like whereas obviously you know people like like luxembourg who would eventually start arguing for this w- would be in, in favor of the mass strike but also uh, bernstein thought that the mass strike was a good weapon in uh, contract negotiations <laughs> so really liked the threat of of the you know the big romantic syndicalist you know uh you know coming day right that that Sorel is so big on like he he liked the ability of the of the that hovering strike weapon to be to you know offer leverage in trade negotiations and um actually davis does an admirable job of of explaining how like you know social democracy in a way was buying the workers off of you know please don't do leninist revolution like, please don't do syndicalist revolution. Please don't do revolution. Well, like, he points out that the right wing of the part that Bernstein and, like, people actually liked the general strike because they viewed it as a means of getting, like, basic demands. Like, they thought of it as, like, a way of, pl- like, as an alternative to revolution that that allows them to gain, like, basic demands, but without, like, you know... It's their it's their stick that they use essentially. It's the stick of labor. Yeah, let's see. Um, I'm going to read a, sh- a short passage from page sixty one. Um, although he went along with the SPD's policy on May Day um, for work stoppages, um, Edward Bernstein, soon to become the leader of the revisionists in the party, had a more favorable opinion of the defensive role of general strikes. Union power, disciplined and well-organized, might be the best assurance that a peaceful road to socialism remained open. Invited by Kautsky over Engels' objections to contribute an article on the topic to the Newsite, Bernstein argued that a general strike or its credible threat could ensure the implementation of reforms passed by a socialist majority in parliament. It was a necessary deterrent to counter-revolution and the suspension of democracy. And then this position was echoed in later years by Rudolf Hilferding, the Austro-Marxist economist, who was a major SPD leader who declared that behind universal suffrage must stand the will to general strike. But Hilferding stressed that the general strike could be no more than this, a defensive weapon. It could not be used to hinder war, advance trade union struggles, or make the revolution. Um, Which I think that's very interesting. And then he just gives a list of general strikes after 1890, which you know starts in May Day in France and goes all the way to 1921 in Argentina, um, and you know so after giving this like pissy read from like the big beards about the <laughs> about the capacity of the general strike, uh, he's like he doesn't even really talk about um, a lot like the the theorists of syndicalism or Panacock. I didn't think Panacock's name comes up in here. I think Luxembourg comes up in here. Like he doesn't really go into those theorists at all, but the way that he unpacks this 
makes one think that he might be sympathetic to that stuff. If it if it wasn't for the kind of group hugness of this, if it wasn't for the smoothing over, because you know if you're a syndicalist or you're like a councilist, you're like pissed. You're pissed over these like fractious political differences. You're gonna mention them. You're not gonna shut your mouth about what happened to the you know the heroes of Kronstadt. You're not like. Um, whereas he's he's kind of smoothing that stuff over. Yeah, I touched on this earlier, but I guess one aspect that he's really Davis is really interested in is that he basically asserts that like the mass strikes revealed like this deep structure of the workers' movement beyond its official organs, and he talks that a little bit about like the development of like working class organizations in the factories, right, and how like the factories themselves were these kind of social ecosystems in and of themselves, and the organizers were almost like these gardeners who would like develop these relationships. And often, because especially like especially places like Russia, but really everywhere, people really kind of brought their own like provincial um, and ethnic uh, tribalism into them with a factory. You'd often have like different ethnic groups or people from different, or in the case of Russia, people from different villages uh, would be at each in different departments within the factory. And so, like the a big part of like being an organizer in these in these situations was like finding ways to develop even like inner solidarity within within those groups you know between you know and trying to trying to resolve those different like another example he brings up is how like later like old old like dinosaur bolsheviks would talk about how like their peasant village was the most radical of all you know <laughs> and he talked about how like there was kind of just like a lot of like on the ground like long like years and decades long work just kind of again sort of like a gardener gradually kind of like nurturing this thing along and in order to lay the groundwork for these kind of quote-unquote like spontaneous eruptions later but there are these like kind of like yeah like almost like underground networks of relationships like within the workers movement that um aren't entirely visible to history because again it's it's there's no way to record something like that unless i guess you know somebody kept a diary or something yeah, and um, I think he has a really good kind of grasp of, like, the causal interactions of historical materialism. Like, the way that social subjectivity and, like, you know, political agency can, like, like they're, they're kind of special kind of causality, like, you know, for each kind of actor, but, like, how they can work in concert together, how, how it could be ever that proletarian interest could be expressed through interest through institutions like how that could ever be the case because let's be honest whoever thinks about that all we ever think about is how it, it is blocked by institutions and that is what we mostly have examples of <laughs> well it's interesting too like reading about this process you get this picture of okay like within within the factory firm you build up this solidarity between the different sectors here and then they coordinate to go on strike or form a union or whatever and you can see how like syndicalists would just think it, you could just expand that to the economy in total right so okay so we got this fact this section of, of capital here and this section of capital is unionized then we'll just coordinate the same way we coordinated you know within the factory if that makes any sense um but you know i mean i think that I don't think Davis is arguing that, but I can you can sort of see like how that logic kind of like develops. Yeah, I mean, I think you could read this and then you know go try to do the union movement now, but I don't think that's where Davis is coming from at all. Well, no, you know, like I mean, he's he's looking back at like why it worked the way that it did, 
and then and and under what conditions and then in order, in order to understand like what conditions something might work now because another big thing another big thing like he looks at is the way that like proletarians were organized in cities and you had like factory districts where people worked and lived basically or people lived all kind of, who worked at firms all kind of lived in the same area as well um and even in places where we had like early suburbs like France like those suburbs were still um geographically tied to the industries they were working in so the people working at whatever wherever would all go and live in kind of the same suburban areas and so you still had that intercourse between workers who were working at the same workplace and being able to talk about their mutual problems and you know develop those kind of like interpersonal bonds that are immensely useful to you know building a union and how you know and you can kind of extrapolate that a lot of the problems that we have organizing the United States now where you know you, every, you don't live in the same you don't live with the people you work with or you don't live in the same area you all drive to different parts of town and never see each other until you're at work because I know I remember I don't if you remember that guy like uh piss pig granddad or whenever whenever to the YPG and then he basically came back here and organized his workplace well, and he unionized his workplace because he worked at a brewery and like the beer, the brewery, like microbrewery thing is basically a scene. So everyone all hangs out and knows each other. So they were all already friends. So it's like, okay, like it's not hard to get them to sign up for a union card. Yeah. Yeah. The network well, is already there. Right. And so, yeah, you can, yeah. so you can see, well, you, you can see him kind of like pulling from that and talking like, cause there's, there's a whole section like the industrial city. And how, you know, in the condition for the working class of England, he, uh, the condition of the working class in England, Ingalls points out that he talks about how urbanization was on par with industrialization as the, the generating force for the proletariat. Yeah, the Red the red Belt of Paris, that was functioned because work and residents were still intertwined. He also emphasizes something that also seems to be kind of forgotten, which is the role of, like, urban urban labor federations. Like, he, he, he goes into, like, yeah, urban labor federations and... Uh, co-ops and how in certain circumstances those things were key in like developing like class uh, consciousness and composition in certain contexts no he's 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 got like a good mind for causality like and seeing one of these things like how these like the specific roles that things can play you know like a lot of Marxists are very negative, you know what I mean? Like they're, I mean, and I, I'm the character of a lot of reason, honestly, is very negative and nihilistic. Nope, can't do this. This doesn't work like this. Nope. Like, but, you know, we also do have historical evidence of how things can work <laughs> and like what, what, like what potentially, um, like how unions can, for instance, um, tend to, build political consciousness that like can outgrow itself um which is sort of like against uh the what is to be done model where organically workers will just have trade union consciousness and labor unions right um but and you need and there's a Kautskian point of view you kind of need the militant to go make it uh, political and that's just merger formula stuff um well, that's why he well he goes backwards further to like the genesis of the working class, basically itself and the working class in yeah. general. 
Like well, he goes he back thinks... to <laughs> like the early working class stuff where you know you basically had like D class A art- artisans and like the beginnings of the workers' movement there. You know before you even had the proper industrial working class, right? So he he's he's kind of surveying that entire development, which I think is really crucial. Uh, what and what is especially important is how he talks about this labor activity as being generative of political consciousness. So this is in a way, yes, this is a kind of like autonomous response to the merger formula. Uh, let me read this. Organizing campaigns and strikes have a political moral momentum that necessarily exceeds the economic demands that were their first cause. Marx was insistent on this point. Moreover, quote, as schools of war angles added, the unions are unexcelled. In the classical era, the first steps towards inclusive organization were almost always defensive in character at first, uh, excuse me, to protest, for instance, a sudden reduction in wage or peace rates, the firing of popular shopmate, the introduction of dangerous machinery or other egregious grievance. But as Marx emphasized in the poverty of philosophy, the union, or in some cases, the clandestine workplace organization, quickly became a goal in itself as irreducible to its purely utilitarian functions as, say, a church or village. This is so true, Marx wrote, that English economists are amazed to see workers sacrifice a good part of their wages in favor of associations, which, in the eyes of these economists, are established solely in favor of wages. This collective moral transcendence of what might be called game-theoretical economic calculation was regularly and vividly illustrated in strikes. Um, and then, yeah, quote, the public rituals of a strike forge in a spirit de corps among workers, a feeling of belonging to a group struggling for common end. They make brothers or sisters in arms. Strike action establishes bonds of debt and mutual obligation. Is on, it is on strike that workers become a working class, end quote. So, like, it, even though he has, like, respect for, like, the causal role of parties, it is a somewhat stronger, like, uh, statement of social, like, determinism, you might say, than what you get in the Kautskian tradition. Like, you don't necessarily need a merger formula for these organizing campaigns to become political. It's sort of like, it's, it's in union activity already. Like, it's in the defense of economic interests, that political consciousness like the way he frames it, I actually don't even like, like, I wouldn't really consider this suspending, you know, your economic interests or, you know, you're suspending your class interests by taking on political causes. Like there's, you know, there are long-term class interests and that's the language that he uses later on in the essay is that, you know, it's a matter of short-term and long-term class interests. That's how I prefer to put it because I, I do think that there is a, an element of calculation you know, as unromantic as it is to, you know, like to some of the, the good long-term like goals that he wants to get at. But I guess the reason that he says this is that he's looking for not just a quantitative like sense of need, but it, he wants that transformation of the, the qualitative like radical need. The radical chains, as he puts it, they need to become radical needs. Uh, we need like a, a we want, we want qualitatively a different kind of life we don't just want like the spoils of capitalism even though we care about exploitation right 
He also talks a little bit about um, rent strikes and efforts at that and kind of maybe like the more um, organization like on like women's side, especially in like like the realm, like the domestic realm. I think they were big instrumental in like the rent strikes. From there, he talks about like proletarian culture and the way that like these sort of counter like when you begin to have like this kind of like working class culture and institutions, you begin to have like this counterculture that emerges and the way that like the working class kind of directed directed like cultural development for instance he talks about how um they were instrumental in like developing and popularizing soccer which used to be kind of like the purview of the upper classes who then immediately switched to like cricket when it lost like its class distinction um it talks about like labor temples as kind of like almost kind of like the embodiment of like a peak a peak, a peak era of like class struggle when they could like build like physical infrastructure and like buildings and shit yeah and like they, of, like their buildings were like a, the apex of like modernist architecture and in a way like they would like demonstrate like important technologies in in you know at work and that was just like a part of modernity you know these labor temples to rival the church or city hall yeah he also talks about like a difference between like how anarchists generally anarchist working class culture and uh sort of like a socialist working or working class culture where like socialist working class culture tended to be about like uplifting in general like you know they tended to have like weird puritanical beliefs such as like you know temperance move temperance was really big uh the temperance movement was really big within no fap yeah no fap uh you know, hiking clubs for kids and no drugs, no drugs, bad. Whereas anarchists tended to be like more loose about that sort of thing. Even though they, they still generally did things to up, sort of uplift workers, you know, they, they organized group events and that sort of thing. But it was less moralistic, which pretty interesting, but kind of expected. Yeah, I guess he also talks a little bit about um, kind of the way, like, class struggle would escalate and develop. Like, for instance, like, I guess one early, like, technique they developed was all, all there would be, they would, like, basically plan a mass strike, but they would only do it, like, one factory at a time. And the other people who are working would contribute funds to the people who are on strike. And they would, they would just kind of go firm by firm, like, one at a time until, like the bosses kind of figure out a way to like counteract that. And then they had to do something else. Mm. Uh, that was interesting. Yeah, he, he described that as the impetus for some of the uh, bosses, like employers associations. Yeah. Um, another one was like, he talked about, um, agrarian, like urban alliances and Scandinavian social democracy. That was really interesting. He almost oh, seems that was to, very interesting. He almost seems to suggest that like, if the SPD had like taken like the same, Tap yeah. towards like peasants that they did in Scandinavia that like that you might have actually had like long running German social democracy which oh yeah I don't I don't know about that but uh, no I I no I I I don't think that's out I don't think that's out outside the bat I think that's like perfectly reasonable I think there's like if you're a Leninist you kind of like or unless I don't know there's like a, a certain kind of Trotskyist that does this and you know certain kinds of like Stalinists or something that aren't Maoists but like that kind of maintain like the prole supremacy thing and like the you know the thing about lenin is kind of he was like well this is supposed to be like you know like we, this we do have like a 
you know, mostly peasantry, right? And they, they're, they're the SR program, you know, has these like radical distributionist things. Maybe we should just like break bread with that. Maybe like Bakunin isn't totally wrong. Maybe Marx is a little wrong about this, that peasants aren't just a sack of potatoes. They can be like a source of revolutionary agency. Aren't we a tribune of the oppressed? Aren't we, you know, aren't we in favor of the exploited classes of history, not just the proletariat, you know, like as well? Like, like aren't, aren't, aren't the peasantry our brothers? Largely actually points out that the position that Kotsky takes on the peasantry, that Lenin takes on the peasantry actually comes almost directly from Kotsky, like an essay that Kotsky wrote. It was a recent essay that Lars Lee wrote himself, but I'm forgetting the name of the essay that Lenin takes his position from, that's by Kotsky. Uh, I'll look it up, I'll look it up real quick. And no, you guys... That'd be great, because Lee is, of course, just one of the, one of the most celebrated like academics doing like that period of history. And he's almost universally loved, you know, except by like people who, you know, really stress the, the Civil War period of Lenin, which, you know, I'm like sympathetic to. Um, but God, like learning this stuff, like about like Lenin and Kautsky and getting like a sense of their continuity in its, in its like good points and like in its critical sense is like a fundamental like reorientation of like understanding how the 20th century played out. It's something like I appreciate, you know, all the, like many of the things we read don't have this framework and I feel like they don't understand history. Yeah. The essay Lenin, Lenin gets, uh, gets, the position on the peasantry from a general uh, concept of a democratic revolution was the driving forces and prospects of of the Russian rev. Oh wait, no wait. I was referring to an article titled "The Driving Forces and Prospects of the Russian Revolution," which was done by Karl Kotsky. He gets the position from Karl Kotsky. That that part of the book, I think he's probably right to suggest this. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, the differences between like, but like, Germany was still kind of like at the heart of like inter imperialist conflict in Europe, whereas like Sweden and Norway weren't. <laughs> so I feel like that 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 changes things a little bit in terms of like the overall like geopolitical implications of them going socialist, as opposed to like a bunch of like Scandinavian farmers. <laughs> well, I mean that that's true, but you know that's the external dynamic. The internal dynamic, you know, is plausible that they could have won over a lot of that class base. And there was a strand, I guess, I guess, you know, if, if Kautsky has this position, then, you know, there is a fairly prominent strand in the SPA day that if that w- carried the day, like could have, you know, could have won a lot more people to the reds. And I mean, you know, Germany was pretty close to becoming like, I mean, you know, they did get elected. It, it, at I some mean, point. yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It could have been like a tipping point. It, you know, that, could, have tipped, that, it could have tipped the scales in the right way. Yeah. It really could have tipped it over. And I mean, I, I, like, you know, when we talk about the failure of political agency of the 20th century, like, it's, it's, you know, it's a bit dizzying and nauseating to think that, so, that, <laughs> that you know, these opportunities didn't play out because it is within people's grasp to make these choices in history. Like we need, you know, better theory to orient ourselves 
And honestly, Marx led us a little bit astray on these things. <laughs> like, and as a good Marxist, we need to take in the historical record and adjust accordingly. Like, that doesn't mean we drop, we drop a theory of class interests or, or pro, the proletarian state or something like that. But continue. Well, Davis 100% actually does blame Engels for that. Because he said yeah. he points out he points out how like Marx was more like open minded to the idea that like the French the Russian peasantry that's, maybe could skip. Um, that's actually true. Um, that the the later um, essays at the end of his life, where he he's talks responding about, to the neurotics and yeah, where he, he, their criticism of capital. He responds to that by saying that capital was mainly describing the development of capital in relation to European capitalism rather than being something that's, you know, completely global. And and he toys around with the idea of possibly like a peasant revolution sparking revolutions across Europe, I believe, in like later letters. But yeah, basically like you know, he basically responds that like socialism could possibly develop in a different way in Russia than it would, say, in you know, in uh, the rest of Europe or whatever. Like, yeah, there's there's a clear like difference in the way that Engels and Marx look at this, and think yeah, thank you for reminding me of that because like it's it, it's not just Marx's comments on the peasantry because you're right, Marx like still ultimately like opens the door here for like as part of a historical materialistly like approved block right like you know greater europe would have the productive forces to like turn these communal forms you know and skip straight to communism as far as that development is concerned right but like overall the whole block has access to capitalist productive forces where like Engels is thinking in a more Kautskyan framework, which is a more national framework, right? Like, and thinking more about what has to happen within the block. And there's not, not, I'm sorry, what has to happen within the country, not with regards to the greater block. And what's interesting is that Engels is, and a lot of this is talking about Germany and how to deal with the peasants in Germany. <laughs> um, which Germany compared to Russia was capitalist and industrialized like, but you know, obviously Germany in general is known as a late industrializer. I, I feel like generally the relationship that the Bolsheviks have to the peasantry is sort of interesting in relation to like how we think. Um, I think I've drawn the comparison before, but the way like there's a division between like white working class, white working class workers, white working class people in the United States and um, just generally like African Americans and like other minority workers, you know, due to due to settler colonialism. Like generally, a lot of decolonializer types take the position where, you know, essentially they're this mass population of settlers does not really matter in like a revolutionary situation and they'll be you know because of shifting demographics or whatever they'll be able to ignore them or get like the few good ones on board with decolonization completely at the same time you have to think about them in, in the same way the bolsheviks thought about the peasantry 
like, the peasantry obviously had, like, intensely reactionary positions. They were deeply loyal to the Tsar to a, to a literally religious degree, and their general position made them somewhat hostile to the idea of a dictatorship of the proletariat. However, because they were the majority of the population, the Bolsheviks couldn't simply just work around them. So, well, while the proletariat was the main bulk of the, you know, they were the quote-unquote vanguard, they still had to work with the peasantry to a large degree and get them on board with a democratic dictatorship. And the same... The same position has to go for decolonization in the United States. You can't sim just ignore this pop. You can't simply just try to appeal to like the oppressed peoples of the United States, without making an appeal to the majority proletariat, even if there is some shifting demographics. But I still have my doubts on that, specifically because of the growth in like a no number of Latinx people who identify as white. The thing about the peasantry and, like, the, their love for the czar is actually Bakunin kind of has, like, a, a fun theory about this. Is that, like, the peasantry, they're not, like, as uh, systematic as, you know, like, proletarians tend to be about these sorts of things. Like, and they have, like, a very, like, sort of fragmented ideology. And Bakunin suspects that they love the czar because he keeps the capitalists in check. And they hate the capitalists. And so anything against the capitalists, you know, they're for. Like, and so therefore, like, Bakunin isn't really bothered by the czarism, by the czarism of the peasantry, which is partially naive because some of that... Literally you know, directly leads to pogroms. Yeah, like, so, some of that is, is, is not true. On the other hand, like, there are, like, there is a sort of deep truth about, like, ideology and sort of like you know disparate like political consciousness that like people can like i don't know pe people express themselves in like like basically like the ways that are limited to like what's around them and um you can get people that don't have like a direct proletarian like like class interest in the way that it's understood by the sort of like the, the, the marxist there to have, you know, broadly speaking, like, they will have, they, they will be subjected to proletarianization at some point, and they will, well, they will have these things. I don't know, like, you can get them to take longer-term positions. Like, that's, it's not impossible. I mean, I thought the latter parts about, like, cyber synth are pretty interesting, uh, cyber synth and direct democracy and, like, imagining the future are pretty interesting, and, like, uh, it kind of fits overall, with, like the political program, well, not program per se, that he puts forward and that he's put forward throughout, Mike Davis has put forward about like reclaiming urbanism and like what what needs to be done with the cities and that sort of thing. You know, in general, there's a continuity of it because he, uh, in the essay, he stresses the importance of like municipal socialism in general development of municipal socialism and sort of the shortcomings of that also and yeah generally interesting how that sort of interconnects with his like larger urbanism i guess
Yeah, no, I like, I like the stuff on Cybersyn too. Um, and yeah, just kind of again, like I was kind of shocked. I was kind of shocked reading this, like how close you know some of this is like to my own thinking, especially that. It's like, oh yeah, he's into planning too. Well, Sweet. like all the stuff he says at the end is is really similar to what we say, but like that has a weird, you know connection to the historical sociology he was just doing right that stuff was probably premature he says towards the end well what about the class like perspective of the proletariat how come they didn't know that cybersyn wasn't invented yet like you know there's like a there's uh, some tension there like but um i don't know i appreciated those comments at the end too he's like not wrong he's like pointing out the socialist calculation debate has kind of been overcome, but like, I mean, you know, he seems to think that like, like the way he he's written it, it's it's maybe around 1960 that this problem could have been overcome, you know, like, and that the sort of like Brezhnevite bureaucracy was holding it back. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's that seems to be just the uh, empirically like what happened. I mean. But yeah, I mean, I I think you know you could still do an alt history where the working class wins Germany, you know, at the right time, you know, like after World War One, and then I mean, you know, I think you can still have like a functional dictatorship of the proletariat without cyber sin. But I think you know, I think that would have helped in terms of planning, like consum yeah production for consumption, uh, specifically. But, well, cy cy the cybernetic technology isn't so much for dictatorship of the proletariat as is for communism, for replacing the market. Right. Like, so depending on, you know, wh whether your like state capitalist dick pearl has an expiration date, you know, that that would be the relevant variable. <laughs> yeah, no, like, uh, yeah, I really like I mean, again, I think it's again, it's it's a series of notes like it isn't really like a, a fully formed thesis. But I like what he's looking at. I kind of I like the kind of thinking he's doing. I like that he is trying to look back and see kind of the continuities and discontinuities with the historical workers' movement. Uh, the stuff where he talked about. I like, for instance, the, the thing where he talked about the service economy because we hear a lot about the service economy now. But that was also a huge thing back then. It just took a different expression because of the different nature of the historical period. Um, and how it, it seems to be kind of this recurring problem under capitalism. Um, you basically you free up a bunch of people to do labor to, you know, basically suck rich people's dicks. <laughs> like that, like that's that's something that like that's not new. But you also see like the discontinuities in the way that like class the the infrastructure that the working class inhabits now is like designed to make it more difficult to organize. Um, and. You know, if we can, if you can sort of look back to the way that people worked around these problems, maybe you can begin to develop a way to address them now. We should know? really read City City of Slums for the podcast. Planet of Planet Slums. of Planet. Slums. My bad. I'm I'm a little bit tired and I'm sitting in a hot box of a room. Yeah, there is also the the book uh, City of Quartz, where Mike Davis is credited for predicting the LA riots. that's it for this week so earlier in the episode there was a bit of a back and forth between Lexi and Rosa about whether Critique of the Gotha program was suppressed by 
the Espe Day or whether it was suppressed by Marx. And the debate was kind of about to what extent Marx and Engels were involved in the Espe Day. Now, I couldn't find... I mean, I didn't look very hard, but I couldn't find any historical sources that would answer this definitively. But I did open the Critique of the Gotha program, and I'd like to read a couple of sections from the, the foreword and the letter to Brack, which might clarify things. Um, in the foreword, Engels says, The manuscript published here, the covering letter to Brack, as well as the Critique of the Draft program, was sent in 1875, shortly before the Gotha Unity Congress, to Brack for communication to Gebe, Auer, Babel, and Liebknecht, and subsequent return to Marx. Since the Hall Party Congress has put the discussion of the Gotha program on the agenda of the party, I think I would be guilty of suppression if I any longer withheld from publicity this important, perhaps the most important document relevant to this discussion. Later on, he says, talking. he talks about sections that he admitted because they were a bit salty towards particular individuals. And he says, uh, the violence of the language in some passages has provoked, was provoked by two circumstances. In the first place, Marx and I had been more intimately connected with the German movement than with any other. We were, therefore, bound to be particularly perturbed by the decidedly retrograde step manifested by this draft program. And secondly, we were at the time, hardly two years after the Hague Congress of the International, engaged in the most violent struggle against Bakunin and his anarchists, who made us responsible for everything that happened in the labor movement in Germany. Hence, we had to expect that we would be saddled with the secret paternity of this program. These considerations do not now exist, and so there is no necessity for the passages in question. Um... And then Marx, in the letter to Brack, um, says, Dear Brack, when you have read the following critical marginal notes on the Unity program, would you be so good as to send them over to Gieb and Auer, Bebel and Liebknecht for examination? I'm exceedingly busy and have to overstep by far the limit of work allowed to me by doctors. Hence, it was anything but a pleasure for me to write a, such a lengthy screed. It was, however, necessary so that the steps uh, to be taken by me later on would not be misinterpreted by our friends in the party for whom this communication is intended. After the Unity Congress has been held, Engels and I will publish a short statement to the effect that our position is altogether remote from the said program of principle and that we had nothing to do with it. This is indispensable because the opinion, the entirely Arianist opinion, is held abroad and assiduously assured by enemies Assiduously, ah, assiduously nurtured by enemies of the party that we secretly guide from here, the movement of the so-called Eisenach Party, uh, the German Social Democratic Workers' Party. Um, apart from this, it is my duty not to give recognition, even by diplomatic silence, to what, in my opinion, is a thoroughly objectionable program that demoralizes the party. So, it doesn't sound like it was self-suppressed. It sounds like at the time it was written particularly for their contacts within the German SPD, and that's who it was circulated amongst. And it was later made public by Engels both for its theoretical import and for its bearing on the particular debates that were taking place later in 1891. So, I don't know if this clarifies the base point behind uh, 
the question of the nature of its quote-unquote suppression. But that them are the facts. So I give I give that conversation uh, two Pinocchios or, or whatever. Okay. So uh, yeah, that's the show. Thanks for tuning in. Next week we got some more Mike Davis. We're just gonna read the rest of this book because it's pretty good, and the second half deals more with ecological considerations, which has have it's been on our mind for a while in the past several months. And um, yeah, so I look forward to that. If you want to get hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. You can contact us on Twitter or any other social media platform that we're on. We're on all of the main ones. If you'd like to support the show, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Um, send us some money via G- via PayPal, which is just swampsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.